Hello and welcome to the Exorcism Podcast. If you are looking to get really good at programming, then this is just the podcast for you. Being a phenomenal programmer is about so much more than just knowing a coding language. It's about being able to solve problems, understand the best tools to solve the problems with, and think things through with clarity. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Exorcism Community Podcast. I'm privileged to be joined by Isaac, who is one of our maintainers and contributors and has recently done a lot of mentoring of a lot of students on our cohorts, our learning cohorts, which we ran for 30 days uh, twice, I think now, um, especially in Go and Elixir. And Isaac helped with the Go track, which was awesome. So Isaac, a huge welcome to you. Um, would you just tell me a little bit about where you're based, where you come from, and how you got into tech? Yes, uh, I'm based in California. I live in San Jose, California. Um, I got into tech. Uh, so, I, I, the honest truth is, I got into tech because my older brother was into tech, and I would do whatever he would do. Um, I had a bunch <laughs> of siblings. Uh, we like to hang out with each other, or some of us like to hang out with others more than others. Um, I had an older brother that I really <laughs> liked to hang out with. Uh, he didn't necessarily enjoy hanging out with me as much, but there was a lot of me following him around and wanting to be doing whatever he was doing. Um, mm -hmm. He picked up a See for Dummies book that was lying around the house when he was about 15 and I was 9, if I recall correctly. So uh, he was writing C and I'm like, if he's doing that, I'm going to do that. Uh, my programs were pretty simple and basic at that age. It was more like, you know, what is your name? Hello, Bob type exercises. Um, they were not overly complex. Got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Got to start there, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, like, I was like, oh, you could print out the visual bell character and it makes a sound. That's so cool. I wrote a, a program that like literally just prints out a slash A. Um, but I was starting at nine. Uh, <laughs> I was writing C programs. Um, we had an old Windows 3.1 machine that uh, booted into DOS. And then uh, my brother had set up a batch script that when the computer booted it would like display a menu that you could select like launch windows launch games there's like a game menu you mm -hmm. could like type like five for like warcraft or whatever um so i was writing batch scripts uh to sort of as we had other games installed and whatnot um and sort of mm -hmm. was all downhill from there uh my brother went to university <laughs> for um computer engineering and once again, I was like, if he's doing that, I'm going to do that. So I started writing C when I was nine. I was writing Visual Basic 6 in high school. I had a Palm Pilot that I was writing various programs on the Palm Pilot in high school. Uh, my math teacher was really cool. Oh, was that was one of those like, like old school? Yeah. Was that that sort of like, remember they tried to release like the pre-iPad thing and it kind of, a few people got hold of it and it, it kind of had the little pen scribble thing. Um, yes. and everyone thought it was like super cool because it came out the end and it was like zoop and then you could like tap away at it and it was kind of it didn't I always remember that because then the iPad started coming out and everyone was like ah a little bit early Palm Pilot was just that little bit little bit ahead of the curve you know what I mean it was great for a decade or so but yeah there was like the Palm Graffiti that used to input there's a little input pad and you had to write yeah. like characters but they were like sort of based on the mm -hmm. alphabet so like the a was just like a triangle and like an f was like the right angle um yeah uh and my high school math teacher was like hey if you wrote the program it's cool if you want to use it on the test so like i was 
writing Palm Pilot programs in the high school, which was really cool. Um, wow. Yeah. I picked up, I went to uh, university for computer engineering. Um, I wrote C. Uh, and then um, people were talking about scripting languages. I didn't quite know what those were, so I randomly picked up Perl. Uh, and then uh, mm-hmm. I got out of grad school. I went and uh, I got hired by Google. In 2013, they moved me from the East Coast to California, and that's where I picked up Python about a decade ago. And Python's been my primary language for the last decade. I went at, at Google, so my style is very much influenced by the Google style, um, and that's why I've been primarily writing. Mm-hmm. And then about four years ago, I guess 2018 or so, Google started pushing the Go language internally, and I picked up mm-hmm. Go at that point. Yeah. Cool. And and Isaac, like when you talk about like Google style, was there like a set sense of this is the right way to do it, or is this kind of like how did when you well, just expand on that a little bit because that that's interesting. Um, coding style isn't necessarily the correct way to do it so much as a uniform way that everyone shall do it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they say like a good compromise or a good deal is a deal where no one's happy. So like no one's quite happy with the style guide, but as long as everyone's following mm-hmm. it, the code looks uniform, uh, and that means that mm-hmm. anyone can pick up any piece of code in the code in the Google code base and make modifications. And as long as they're following the same style guidelines, like the code is all uniform. You don't have to be like, oh, this code base uses four space indents and this one uses two space where like this has a naming convention like this or like that. Um, everything across the entire code yeah. base is done the same way. Not everyone's happy with any of it. Uh, there's always, everyone has their own areas where they w- would wish it was done differently. But given that there is mm-hmm. a documented style guide, uh, which is publicly available, you could, look, you could just Google for the Google Python style guide and it tells you this is how we write code at Google. Yeah. And as long as everyone sticks to that guide, the code all looks very uniform, which is really nice to be able to open any code base. And it just looks like, you know, there's no surprises about like, oh, they write this differently. Is, is that is that, a, is that why Go maybe is sort of fits quite nicely into that context? Because it's formatted and, and really like this is how it is. <laughs> you can definitely see the Google influence on that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much Rob Pike was influenced by the Google approach or how much he influenced the Google approach. I'm not sure which led to which, but Go definitely takes that to another level where um, they're even more... Like, with with Python, there are different styles and people tweak their their linters to accept different things. Um, For example, internally, Google uses two-space indents in Python because there's a lot of code that's nested deeply and they don't want to have just like a massive wall of space. Um, Externally, Mm -hmm. most people use four spaces and that's sort of written into the Python uh, documentation. Um, But yeah, when it comes to Go, they just took that to another level and they're like, the language itself has both (laughs) formatting. There is only one way to format. Uh, There's no online flame wars about which is the correct way. There is only one way. It saves a heck of a lot of back and forth. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, maybe. Yeah. So, that's cool. so 
Okay, so now when you started at Google, had you never done Python or had you like dabbled or was it kind of an easy jump? Like how, because it, you made it sound like you kind of got the job at Google and then it was like, okay, cool, learn Python, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, I believe before I joined Google, I never wrote Python. I was writing Perl for um, a year or two, hmm. I guess a couple of years at that point. I started writing Perl um, my first summer job. It's a whole different story. Um, I started writing Perl uh, six years prior to joining Google, so I was writing a fair bit of Perl at that point. I was writing a little bit of Bash, um, so I was familiar with scripting mm-hmm. languages, uh, but I haven't ever written Python. Uh, but once you dabble with enough languages, uh, the learning curve is a little bit less steep to pick up another language because you've seen most of the constructs already, and it's just a slightly different syntax, mm-hmm. a slightly different toolkit. Um, but like, it's a lot of the same old, just slightly different, written differently. Uh, the constructs tend to be pretty similar. So once you've picked up four languages, yeah. picking up a fifth is like, oh, this is just written slightly different. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 is, that is interesting. So, so now you, you giggled a little bit about your first job, like out of high school. Um, so, so now you, cause it's, it had you always been like, I'm going to be on the engineering, like I'm going to be doing the computer thing. Had that always been like a conscious thought or was it always like, this is just where I naturally fit and I enjoy this and that's it. Like how did, how did that kind of play out? I guess. I was very much just trying to follow in my brother's footsteps. Uh, he went to computer engineering. He, w- he started writing programming. He started programming when I was a kid. I followed along. I was writing programming since I was mm-hmm. young. Uh, he went to computer engineering, and that was the, you know, I wanted to do the same thing as he did. And also, I was having a great time writing um, programming and all mm-hmm. that. So I had, from the time I entered high school, and my brother was going to university already, like I knew that's where I wanted to end up. So he's a few years, a few years older than you. So like, it sounds like he he played a massively big influence on you as a as a as a person. How many other siblings do you have? Or I mean, or was he like the sort of the the bee's knees? <laughs> in your, I've got in your eight. Eyes? I've got eight siblings, but he was definitely the one that I got along really well. He's one of, I guess, I get along with some of them better more than others. When you have eight, there's always a range. I got along with him quite well. Uh, we tend to think a lot. Yeah. Similarly, uh, we tend to have similar interests. Mm-hmm. Um, we would geek out about computers uh, all the time. We still do. His wife doesn't like when that becomes the dinner table conversation. She's like, no work at the dinner table. Um, <laughs> but like We just yeah. geek about programming all the time and talk about it all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's really hard to say like how much was just me wanting to copy him versus us just having similar interests. But uh, we definitely have similar mm-hmm. interests now. I don't know how much of that is, you know, nature versus nurture. I can't really comment on how much of that is me yeah. copying him versus us just having similar interests. But uh, given that I yeah. was following in his footsteps from an early age, uh, I, you know, I was following and he was setting the path to some extent and I was following it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, that's really cool. And, and is he, where is he now? Just out of interest, is he uh, on the East Coast and... Uh, He's still on the East Coast. He's working in tech. Uh, we've worked at the same company briefly. Um, he, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so there's, there's that, that, that's cool. I just was, was interested to ask. Now, now one of the things that, um, so you've been really involved 
on on the the cohort that we've just had. So so the the latest um, learning cohort, um, especially with with Go, we were running a thirty day thing with Go. Like how and, and and then your involvement with exorcism previously has been sort of specifically in maintaining, but also quite a lot of mentoring, as far as I understand. So how how have, how have you found that split? Like, I mean, how did you come across exorcism and, and what are the different aspects that you kind of enjoy contributing towards? So I originally came across exorcism because I was trying to learn, relearn Haskell. Uh, I took a Haskell 101 class at Google that was quite fun. And then I was like, oh, I should spend more time doing this. And that fell aside. And then I mm. tried to come back to it. Uh, not having... Uh, with any language, I find that the easiest way to learn it is to actually write it. And the easiest way to write it is to have a purpose for writing it. I haven't mm-hmm. found a great purpose for writing Haskell, which made it really hard to pick up. Um, but I found out just as a minute, I'm like, oh, this might help me write more Haskell. So that's mm-hmm. how I originally found Exorcism. Um, once I was there, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, there's a Python track and a shell track, and I guess I could write exercises in here. So I... And down the rabbit hole, tricks. and down the rabbit hole you went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I started solving exercises in Python. I started solving exercises in Mesh. I did a couple of the Go exercises. Uh, when the Go horde came up, and I was looking through some of my prior solutions, I saw a lot of them were submitted three years prior. So I did. I first signed up for the mm-hmm. Go track in 2019 and solved a chunk of those exercises back then, okay. um, and then. I've been doing Python for a decade at this point, so I felt relatively comfortable uh, joining as a Python mentor, which is where I spend most of my time on exorcism these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started submitting PRs, pull requests to the Python track because there were things that were out of place. Uh, and then I started getting involved in the bash track. And I'm not entirely sure how it happened, but I went from submitting fixes to the bash track to being a bash <laughs> maintainer. Um, Oh, just like that. I mean, it's just like, ooh, <laughs> yeah, what, careful what you sign up for, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so. And then Glenn wrote out the Auk track, and I was like, oh, I know Auk. I, I like Auk. So let me hop onto the, that bandwagon. So I helped build up the exercises on the Auk track. Uh, I had, when I had written Go exercises, uh, I'm not entirely certain, but I think three years ago when I solved Go exercises, I completed the entire track. And then one of the mentors was like, oh, you've finished all the exercises. Maybe you should become a mentor. Uh, I'm not sufficient. I don't write Go often enough, regularly enough to feel that comfortable Mm -hmm. mentoring it. So I wasn't really a Go mentor. Uh, But then when I joined the cohort and there was a bunch of people who wanted mentoring, I was like, oh, I guess I could sign up to mentor for the month and help out there but I actually originally joined the cohort as a student uh, and then okay. sort of slid over from the student side, I guess. Watch out, what you, watch out what you sign up for. I tell you, it's like, yeah, it seems to be a pattern emerging where you, you sign up for one thing and then you end up as another, but uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's really cool. And uh, okay. So, and, and then what, in terms of like when you've been mentoring students on the go track, so specifically, what are some of the like com- most common things that you see, um, I mean the go the go track. There's probably quite a lot of seasoned developers, I would say, who who did it, like people who had a bit of track record in development. But how, what were some of the things that you noticed that you were like, okay, that those are the common things that see, people seem to kind of get stuck on? Was there were there any patterns or 
things that you found were like, mm, okay, that's common, that's fairly consistently uh, appearing, potentially? I don't know. I haven't seen... Most of the mentoring that I've seen has been on people on completed solutions. People, more often than not, will have solved the exercise before they go mm-hmm. for mentoring. So people generally aren't stuck for most of the interactions that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's mostly, you know, they've successfully completed an exercise, and then it, a lot of the input is, um, you know, is there a more efficient way to do this? Is there a better algorithm? Uh, one of the common ones that come mm-hmm. up way too often is, like, string building uh, in in languages like Go and Python, where strings are immutable, doing a lot of string concatenation mm-hmm. is not very efficient. So it's a lot of, like, hey, you could build this using a an array and then join the strings where you can use a string builder in Go. So there's a lot of, you know, point pushing them towards better, I guess, patterns, best practices and patterns. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's cool. No, that's, that, that's fascinating. So now, currently, what what does your, like, day-to-day look like with, with work in terms of, um, like, where does development fit in? You say you've been in tech for a while, like, what does the day look like? What are the challenges? What are the, the bits that you enjoy um, with work um, at the moment? Uh, so I'm in a site reliability engineering role, uh, which is mm-hmm. loosely similar to DevOps. It's got some sysadmin stuff in there. Uh, I've been carrying a pager on an on-call rotation for the last decade or so. So my day-to-day depends a lot on whether or not it's my on-call week or not. When I'm on call, it's a lot of mm-hmm. okay. watching the pager, there's a ticket queue, support queue, uh, making sure that any failing processes or mm-hmm. problems are diagnosed and fixed. Uh, so that's roughly you know one week out of six, wherever large the team currently is. Uh, and the rest of the time, uh, I spend a lot of time messing with automation. So it's a lot of identifying processes that are cumbersome and making them less cumbersome. Uh, it might be that, mm-hmm. you know, when this pro- problem happens, we have to run, uh, you know, we manually repair by doing these commands and those commands. And it's like, well, why are we running these commands by hand? Can we write a Python script that could do mm-hmm. all of that for you? Uh, or can we improve the yeah, yeah. tooling to not fail and catch that problem itself? And a lot of just trying to improve mm-hmm. the day-to-day of how we run systems such that humans are less involved or don't need to be as you know as involved as deeply to keep things running smoothly mm-hmm. so does your day like do you enjoy trying to find those little areas where there can be optimizing where things can be optimized is that kind of like how much of your job is reacting to stuff and then from the reaction being like oh cool this is an opportunity to being like proactively looking for those little areas like what's the balance typically i enjoy automation that's probably the thing i enjoy the most about my job is being able to automate things uh it's not always reactionary i mean reactionary mm-hmm. could mean that something breaks it could also be like oh you know people are running this command where well, i found that there's this command that we tend to copy paste uh and can i improve mm-hmm. that where i'll see someone make a change to like a run book somewhere where improve a command somewhere and i'm like oh that command's pretty messy can I just rewrite that from scratch? Um, so refactoring, like, oh, you, you could say. Refactoring, uh, notify, noticing that there's tools that are 
you know, cumbersome to use and deciding to rewrite those were write wrappers around them. Uh, I'll see, yeah, like, I'll see code changes to, like, some large, complicated program and be like, oh, that program's a mess. Can I go in and, like, rewrite that or refactor it? Yeah. Uh, or creating new... I mean, it's not always refactoring. It's also sometimes just creating new tools. It's like, oh, we have a process that involves doing 20 steps. Let me just shove that all into a program. A lot of it does tend to yeah. be, you know, I have to discover these somehow. Sometimes I discover them because I'm assigned to carry out a set of tasks, and then I'm like, I don't want to run these by hand. Sometimes I discover them by just noticing, like, I'll be looking up some code piece somewhere, and I'll be like, oh, this other code over here, this other team maintains, is doing things poorly, let me refactor that, or, like, use modern libraries or whatever. Uh, yeah. So, so a lot of um, just being able to see, so how much, how much free reign do you have? Do you have quite a lot of free reign to kind of go around and sort of swoop in, tweak here, and I mean, that must be quite fun, quite enjoyable (laughs) in one level. Uh, My manager affords me a lot of free reign, which is really nice. Uh, I don't know how much of this came from, like, my I'm I'm not currently at Google, but I don't know how much of this came from my background at Google. At Google, people were very open to swooping in and being like, oh, I noticed the others, you know, I happen to use this library and it could be improved in this way. Let me go ahead and fix it. Um, I very, very briefly worked at a startup where the culture was very different and it was a lot less open. Uh, and at the startup, okay. people were very protective about their code bases and having other people modify their mm-hmm. code was not very accepted. So I'd be like, oh, there's an issue with this code base. Really? Let me change so, it. And so, people are like, it's not that, your code that, base. Yeah. <laughs> Back off. But, but in, in, that's interesting because you assume that a startup would be way more like, well, just get the job done and do it as cheaply as possible, you know, but actually maybe Google was way more able to handle that as a, as a concept. And I, sorry, I've just put the light on cause we no lights currently for everyone listening. No, just in Cape Town every now and then just, uh, now I'm blinding myself, but it's fine. Um, but that's interesting going back to that point about the startup culture and, and how like people are way more, ironically caught up in having ownership of stuff and then maybe hamstringing things a little bit, you know? Yeah. I don't know that being a startup necessarily ties well to being a open or like a play-based work culture at Google. A lot of what people did was play where they enjoyed what they do. They do it because they enjoy it. They were very Mm. friendly about it or very open about it. Um, Some other workplace cultures Mm. are more uh, less about like, necessarily doing things because you enjoy it and more about like it's a job or this is my code and like I know how this works I don't want other people messing with it Um, I'm not entirely sure what goes into making these workplace culture changes but uh, Google very much did foster a sense of you know everyone has access to all the code you're all empowered to make changes to it Um, go ahead and do whatever you think is the right thing to do and then at my current job with my current manager he's also he's been very He's given me a lot of free reign. He's like, you know, sure, you found something to fix, go ahead and yeah. fix it. You found an area where things can be improved, like, I'll just get out of your way, let me know what I can do to help. So I very much yeah. am able yeah. to uh, self-direct a lot of what I do and just, you know, if I find an area where I'm like, oh, I could make this better, he's like, yeah, that's cool, go for it. Okay, nice. And and, and you, the company is based over, on the East Coast, am I right in saying? So you, you actually work remotely. I think I remember you saying you were about to move over 
and then COVID hit, and it was kind of like eh, that whole came that whole thing came to to an end. How are you finding the the remote, um, the distance, the time lag, all of that kind of stuff? Does it affect you or like, yeah? I definitely do miss being in an office and interacting with people in person. Uh, so there's that. Um, the time lag has my my team has been very uh, accommodating with the time difference. So I am three hours behind the rest of my team. Uh, there is a short daily stand-up that I miss. We have two daily stand-ups for two different products. Uh, so the first one I do miss, and my team has been very good about accommodating me there, and we use Slack a lot internally, so they would, they're would very good about having like a daily Slack thread with issues that came up so I could be caught up, and if they need anything, they'll ping me. Mm-hmm. Um, I do... I. Mm-hmm do try my best to be responsive uh, and address any of that stuff as quickly as I can in the morning. So uh, it is a little bit like it's, it's the time lag is not great, but it's also not, they've been, we've been managed to work through it quite well. Um, and then conversely, there is the other side where they do know that they have someone on the team who's awake a little bit later. So I've had some colleagues like, you know, it would be 6 p.m. on the East Coast, and like, oh, this is broken. You know, hey, Isaac's on the West Coast. You know, Isaac could help me out with this because yeah, it's yeah. still only 3 p.m. there. Uh, so it does work in both yeah, directions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the... I was... Pl- I, yeah, so I left Google in 2019. Sorry, 2020. I, I interviewed in 2019. I was supposed to join 2020 in May. I was planning on moving okay. August, uh, April 2020, but COVID started and all that, and the office got closed down, and it was just a lot of, like, oh, the office is not yet open. He'll move as soon as the office opens. Uh, and then two years into the pandemic, yeah. they yeah. started opening the office again, and I was like, you know, I'm not sure I want to move anymore. Um, New York sounded yeah. really exciting, but, <laughs> like, there were all these businesses open and, you know, venues and stuff going on, yeah. but now that there's a pandemic, a lot of that's not quite as exciting sounding anymore. So mm-hmm. I transitioned to a remote uh, position after working remotely for two years. Yeah. And, and are you, are you like a city person or a countryside or like halfway in between? Like what? Cause New York is city. It's like hundred percent city. I mean, there's no two ways about it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so that would have been quite a shift, I guess. Um, yes. Exciting nonetheless. I did grow up in a large metro area, so I uh, am no stranger to city life. I currently live in suburbia. Okay. Uh, I enjoy hiking and cycling, and I try to get outdoors as often as I can. So I do enjoy living in suburbia near amazing hiking and cycling trails and all that. Uh, moving to New York would be oh, quite cool. a change. But uh, yeah. You know, yeah. I figure mixing it up every so often is not a bad thing. And if I hate my life in New York, I always move away. <laughs> <laughs> it's not not that that tricky to do that, yeah. but um, no, that's 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 cool. So so now, you sp- you probably correct me if I'm wrong. Spend a lot of time in, on screen in like an office, like home office or whatever. Like, do you do you get out every day to sort of how do you balance the whole in the screen world versus kind of do you have like your daily time where you're like I've got to get out and just get outside <laughs> and do something else. I wish I did. Some days or some months or some years are better than others. Uh, 2020, I was pretty good about cycling almost every day. Um, 
I do get outside most weekends. I try to do one hike a week. Uh, I haven't been great about it, but I, I'm going for a hike. Uh, depends on the season. I'm in California. Some weeks are extremely hot. We just had a heat wave where it was uh, over 40 Celsius for about a week straight. So that makes it challenging to get outside. Uh, we're in California yeah. where we have yeah. fires. So, you know, sometimes we'll go for a week or two where the air quality outside is not entirely safe to breathe so that makes it mm. challenging to be outdoors in california some weeks uh and yeah. then being indoors with yeah. the pandemic is also challenging so there's definitely some weeks where i'm much more indoors than others um but mm. i do like getting outside there's been you know i've gone like just been six month stretches where i've been hiking going for hikes like at least every other week cool. uh, i've had stretches where i've been camping like once a month for you know six months straight so there's some stretches where I'm oh, better nice. than others, and then there's some stretches where I'm just like in the house for like two weeks straight. Yeah, no, that's cool. And and so Isaac, like, what is the next kind of? I mean, this is maybe I don't know. Maybe you haven't thought this far ahead, but what does the next five years look like for you in in terms of? What do you do? You have any idea, or are you kind of like I want to start a business on my own, or I want to do this, or are you just kind of like ah, just enjoying life and, and enjoying where I'm at. And I, before I moved to the West Coast, I thought I had a better handle on what my future is going to look like. But having all of that turned on its head taught me that it's really hard to predict what's going to happen in the next year, let alone five. Uh, I'm quite. I just changed yeah, jobs relatively <laughs> recently. Uh, I changed jobs about yeah. two, two and a half years ago. I'm quite enjoying my current job, so I don't see that changing anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I'd be happy to remain at the same job for the next two, three years. Mm -hmm. um, five years down the line, I you know I, I love living in California. I love being able to go hiking and biking and camping and all that. So I don't see mm -hmm. myself leaving California anytime too soon. And I don't see myself leaving that job anytime soon uh, because I do enjoy working yeah. there quite a lot. So I'm pretty mm -hmm. content and I don't see any major, I don't have any major changes planned, but uh, yeah. it's really hard to say. No, that's cool. Okay, so I've, I've got a couple more questions, uh, which I would love your, your perspective on. The first one is probably not the one that I prepped you for, but the one, so if you were if you were gonna if if ten people walked into your into your office right now, ten complete strangers, and who didn't know anything about coding, and you had like a I don't know a harpist and a and a gardener and whatever, what would be the the top three tips you would give them to learn how to start coding? Like if you could boil it down to like do this at all costs, what would what would some of those tips be? So the number one recommendation I would have is to try to find a problem that you could solve with coding. So you have a concrete project that provides motivation without a specific goal in mind to drive you forward. It is extremely challenging uh, to mm -hmm. start coding. Uh, learning, similar to any other skill, uh, learning to code does require a fair bit of tenacity or grit. You just need to keep at it. It could be very challenging at first. Yeah. Uh, it could be very frustrating. And without like something to drive you forward, it's very easy to give up on it. Uh, so if at all possible, mm -hmm. having a something you actually want to do with it helps a lot. Um, it's sort of all like in the same constellation of advice. It's just, you know, 
you have to have you got to keep at it. Uh, it helps a lot to be patient with yourself and recognize that you're learning a new skill and you're going to fail a lot. Uh, I've had some people who mm. try to learn coding and they get frustrated. They're like, "Oh, I'm usually good at things and I can't." You know, it's not working out of the box. And I'm like, yeah, you know, failure is part of the learning process. And if you're uncomfortable yeah. failing at yeah. something, you can have a really hard time picking up a new skills. So you have mm-hmm. to be patient with yourself and with the process. Uh, and it's just a lot of, you know, keeping at it. Yeah, that's that's really, that's useful. I mean, I, I would say that's kind of, I've only just realized how methods work in light, you know, and, and that's just been going through and, and because a lot of the knowledge that you, well, when people talk about stuff, it's, there's so much assumed knowledge, um, when people teach, especially so like, so everyone's like throwing this word methods around. I'm like, what the, what on earth is a method? Like what is going on? And it was only through the, the cohort with, with go that I started realizing, Oh, methods work in this way. And, but it, it was almost like the penny drop, but I had to immerse myself in this, environment and this terminology for so long that it kind of seeps in i'd say that was one of the biggest learnings for me was like not to try and learn it all but just chip away at one simple concept because everything interlinks so much that eventually you you are able to kind of start stringing the mental model together um which is which is really important so that's that's a, a great little tool um so i'll let people know about that that isaac's recommendation be patient and be kind <laughs> to yourself and chip away. Um, that's really cool. Okay. Then the final question I have, and uh, before I let you crack on with the rest of your day, is um, we talked about as a team um, this concept of the hill that you would die on in tech. And that sounds pretty melodramatic and pretty uh, a lot of drama involved. And the idea is essentially what is the one thing that you believe is absolutely key that you think is like an immovable mindset or perspective in t- to have in tech so a good example would be i don't know on a very trivial level i always put my functions and then i code my css if i'm doing front end so functionality then logic then whatever it could be you know we had one uh, rebecca who runs the unison track she was like um having a genius who's opinionated and tricky to work with she would rather have 50 people who really love working in a team and solving problems together than one genius who is takes up all the bandwidth in terms of managing. So that was one of her, uh, and I phrased it nicely, but what would be your hill that you would die on in the tech space that is your kind of non-negotiable? Um, this is probably extremely heavily influenced from how Google does things. At Google, uh, they have this concept of readability where uh, code is supposed to be easy to read. And a lot of... Mm-hmm. What I do in when I, when I write code, I want my code to be simple to read and understand. Uh, and I've seen a lot of code, especially mm-hmm. in code. There's a lot of focus on efficiency and benchmarking and making your code faster. And often I'll acknowledge that the way I'm doing it is not necessarily the most efficient. But if I find that the code mm-hmm. is easier to read, uh, I would prefer inefficient code that's easy to read over super efficient code. Uh, so, what, like, you know, there's the, the, the uh, it's a common quote, I'm not sure who exactly it's attributed to, uh, that the root of all evil, the premature optimization is the root of all evil. And whenever people are like, <laughs> oh, how can this be more efficient? I'm like, 
does it need to be more efficient? Have you ran into, you know, are you running in production and running into issues with efficiency? Is this too slow to use in production? If you haven't actually experienced an issue with the code in production where it needs to be more efficient, why would you make it more efficient? It's easier to read as is. It's easier to maintain. Other people could understand what's going on. Why would you give away well-written code that's easy to work with and easy to maintain to save some CPU cycle. It's electricity is cheap enough and CPUs are cheap enough that we don't need to optimize code yeah. just to optimize it. Yeah. It, it, it's always funny because it's one of those things I'm like, oh, we, our, our program compiled and well, ran in 30 milliseconds. And they're like, oh, but we made it go down to like 20 milliseconds. I'm like, I, I could not tell you I couldn't tell you <laughs> which was quicker, which was slower. That seems quick. So I think I, it's, it's a good point. Um, I, I, I'm sure I'd enjoy reading, reading a code, but that's great. Isaac, thank you very much for your time, um, for waking up early and for putting up with load shedding in the Southern Hemisphere. And for me sitting in complete darkness, um, I'm sure that is probably quite comedy for, for you. Um, but thank you very much for your time. And, uh, I look forward to seeing you on future learning cohorts and in the mentoring streams and all of that. And uh, thank you for all the int- uh, contribution that you make towards exorcism and across the board. So appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you so you much again. Me. And I will see you in a second. Sure. No, pleasure. Cheers. Take care, Isaac. Bye.